Reverend Keel's book, The Unfolding Word, and we're uh, in Exodus right now. And today I'd like to really take a look at uh, the Exodus and the plagues in particular. And what we've been trying to do throughout this series is recognize that we're tracing a story, right? All of scripture is telling one story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's really following the promise of God that was made in the garden. Right after Adam and Eve fell into sin, that there was a promise of a seed that would crush the head of the serpent, but it recognized that there's going to be a war throughout history. And that war is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. We saw that in Genesis. There was a difference between those who called out upon the name of the Lord and those who did what was right in their own eyes. And it was comparing and contrasting those two things. And Genesis really had this huge warp of human history, all the way from the time God created the universe, uh, the first 12 chapters, um, all the way from that point to, to Abram. And then it really slows down. Chapter 12 all the way through 50 is just following basically Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it's just showing the promise. Uh, Throughout scripture, it unfolds and we get to know or understand the promise more that was made in seed form in Genesis. It just says, there's gonna be a a seed of a woman that comes that crushes the head of the serpent. We're like, great. Uh, And Adam and Eve, that was enough for them. They believed and trusted the promises, but we find out a lot more about it as it goes on. And last week, I think I caused a little confusion that I want to clear up. The covenant of grace did not start with Abram or Abraham. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. It actually started with God in eternity. Uh, But it started with Adam and Eve in the garden. We learn more about it with Abram and a specific covenant, uh, uh, sanctions were made with him or a covenant sign was given to him, but it wasn't brand new. It's still the covenant of grace uh, that was running through up to that point, but we find out more about it. And in particular, God had promised Abraham, Abraham both a people and a place. And we recognize throughout history and redemptive history that God is building his people. He's building his church and that the heavens and the new heavens and the new earth are going to be riddled with people, a multitude that can't even be counted of those who call on the name of the Lord, and it is a place as well. So what God had intended in the garden is realized exponentially uh, beyond anything that we could have imagined uh, at that point, even in the new heavens and the new earth. And then one of the things that Zach Keel's book really wanted to point out is who is Yahweh? The way that Exodus, Genesis and Exodus came to the people of God was written when they were already out of Egypt. So it was kind of telling them, you who have been rescued by God, you who have been, saw the 10 plagues, you who went through the Red Sea, you who are, stood at the, mount, uh, the foot of Sinai, let me tell you that the, the Redeemer God is also the Creator God. And it comes into a... Um, a situation of all these polytheistic religions and all these different creation ideas. And so it kind of speaks into that. It doesn't start off by telling us Yahweh says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes through Genesis. If you remember those 10, 10 generations, 10 Toledotes, just kind of tracing the seed as well as tracing those who didn't. It had a faithful seed and an unfaithful seed and it kind of compared and contrasted those. So it's just following that line But one of the main questions of scripture, one of the main questions that we want to know is who is Yahweh? Who is this God? Who is the Lord? What is his name? What is he like? 
And in Exodus in particular, the Israelites are going to learn who he is. The Egyptians are going to learn who he is. And we're going to learn who he is from listening to and watching and hearing all of this unfold. But one of the things that's really important in Scripture and in our lives is remembering and forgetfulness. Remembering is actually part of the Christian or pilgrim life. And it's not just a mere intellectual exercise that we do like, oh yeah, I put something down on my calendar. I remember my anniversary is June 17th and I remember that, but I also participate in it, right? The remembering in a Christian sense is a participation in things. I participate in my anniversary as well. What are some things that scripture particularly calls us to remember? Fourth commandment. What was that? Remember, remember the Lord's Day, right? To keep it holy. What else? Christ's death, right. Today, take, eat, remember, and believe. And it's not just, oh yeah, that happened. The very next thing is, this is a participation and a sharing in the body of Christ. So remembering as a Christian is not just an intellectual exercise. It's a full-bodied reality of something that we participate in. It didn't just happen outside there. It's happening here. It's happening today. It's happening in me. It's happening with me. It's happening for me and for others as well. It's remarkable to think about. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's a day for us to rest from our normal activities and to come together and receive from the Lord, uh, to remember uh, this this body was broken for you. Remember this blood was shed for you. There's, There's kind of a a a remembering that God constantly stirs up in us through his word and through his spirit and through history. But we often can be a forgetful people. And at this time in particular, after Genesis, now we're looking at Exodus, that there have been like 400 years of slavery. And now the Pharaoh that was on the throne in Egypt didn't really remember Joseph. That was 400 years ago. You know, who's that guy Joseph and what does it have to do with me today? Whereas that first Pharaoh really appreciated Joseph. He blessed him, you know, gave him second spot in all of the kingdom. It was through that that the Lord had preserved his people. There was a famine in the land and uh, all the sons of Joseph were able to come, uh, all the sons of Jacob uh, were able to come and receive sanctuary there. But then there was trouble for them and there was 400 years. And this Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph. And he was very oppressive, he was exploitative, he was cruel. He actually calls for the murder of Hebrew babies. I mean, just a tyrant, a dictator, he's awful. And there's an element in um, Exodus that we also read that the Israelites are kind of forgetting who God is. After that 400 years and being oppressed and being in slavery, they still know God's name, but they've also added other polytheistic practices. They've added other gods and other practices to their worship or to their idea uh, of how, how they worship God. So it's going to be really important during the book of Exodus in particular to establish, well, who is this who demands soul allegiance? And who is this who is the God above all gods? Who is the one who rules all the nations? Who is this exclusive God who are called upon to trust, who are called upon to worship, and who created us and redeemed us? So there's a real forgetfulness going on. And there's a real tendency in our own lives, right, to have spiritual amnesia. You know, what have you done for me lately, right? That was even Jonah, right? You saved me from 
the water. You saved me from the belly of the fish. Fantastic. Now I'm mad that you're showing mercy to someone else. Or how often do we look, look at all the blessings that God showers down upon us and say, yeah, but what about this and what about this and what about this and what about this? Sometimes it's good for us just to reflect on how good and how faithful the Lord is. It's not wrong to pray for and to ask the Lord for things. He invites us to do so. But we want to hold that loosely in our hands and say, you know, if, if I can have this spouse, if I can have this job, if I can have this thing, that's wonderful. Uh, but I trust it to you, not my will, but thine be done. If we're holding on to it, I won't be happy, I won't be content until I have that thing. That thing's become an idol. It's okay to lift any of those requests and prayers for anything that's good up to the Lord and ask him to give it to you, but not to hang on to it so tightly that if you don't have it, then you're going to resent the Lord or resent others. And so the Hebrews had forgotten a bit, but the Lord always remembered (laughs) If you did take the time to read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or those of you who are familiar with Genesis or the Scripture, there's constantly a refrain in Scripture, but the Lord remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord remembered his covenant with his people. And note that it's always going back to the covenant of grace. Whenever God wants to deal with his people, it's not, and he remembered, you know, what had happened in the garden, or he remembered what had happened at Mount Sinai. It doesn't turn out well. But he remembers that promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. And remember, that was a unilateral promise. Uh, Abraham was asleep (laughs) when God made the covenant with him, right? I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will do all of these things. And if I don't, then let what happened to these bloody animals in that ritual in uh, 17, 15, um, let let that come upon me. Let me be cursed. I will, I will, I will, I will. Over and over, the Lord says. So he remembers his people. So in Exodus, if you want to keep the book of Exodus open, we'll look at a couple verses. In Exodus 1-7, Joseph dies. But it says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that they filled the land, so that the land was filled with them. So you can see even there, like a people in a place, right? Be fruitful and multiply. They were fruitful and multiply, just like God had originally intended for creation, but also for redemption. And so just in that little verse, it's packed with meaning of echoes of creation. Humanity was to fill the earth, to multiply, uh, to fill the land, to be fruitful. And here the nation of Israel is. Even though they're in a foreign land and even though they're being oppressed, they're still growing and increasing. And then in terms of redemption, it was an echo of the covenant of grace that you will be my people and you will have a place. And amidst the very murderous treachery and evil of Pharaoh, look at what it says in Exodus 1.17. So the Pharaoh was going to kill all the Egyptian babies, as you know. And in verse 117, it says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king uh, had commanded them, but set the male child free. And then in verse 19, it says, so God dealt with the midwives. And then look at Exodus 2, 23 through 24. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
So you hear that idea of him remembering. It's not like he had forgotten it. Again, for him, it's uh, remembering that people cry out to God and God responds. People cry out to God and God responds. People cry out to God and responds over and over and over throughout Scripture and over and over throughout your life. You were given the Lord's Prayer to pray out, give me my daily bread, forgive me my debts. Like You need those things every day. You need something to eat and you need forgiveness because if you haven't figured it out yet, you sin every day. And so you need that constant presence of the Lord in that life, your life and that, that reminder. And so you have the opportunity and the privilege to call out to the one that created the universe is also your father and he invites you to come. And so we recognize that their groanings cry out, God hates sin, God hates injustice, God responds to these things, not always in the time frame that we want, but God always responds to this. He's not going to let injustice go unpunished. It's either unpunished at the cross in Jesus Christ, or it's unpunished in time and history, either at that time or certainly when Christ returns. But it's not going to go unnoticed. It's not going to go unheard. It's not going to go unrecognized. God cares desperately and deeply how he's treated, how his name is treated, how his creation is treated, how we treat one another, and he acts and he responds. Not always, again, in our timing, but he always responds. And so Zach Keel, on page 49 in the book, says that there are some themes that reoccur throughout Scripture. And I'm just going to mention them here. They're in your notes. There's a link between the past, the present, and the future. That makes sense in terms of remembering, right? The past of what God promised, the present, what God's doing, and the future, where we're, where we're going, Think of that even in terms of the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper. It says, on the night when he was betrayed. So we're thinking about the past. This body is for us, the present. And we're looking to the future. We do this until he returns. So, I mean, this is just the way that we live our Christian life. And that God is a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The past, the present, and the future as well. He doesn't change. And so it's meant to give us great confidence uh, in the God of history, in the God of our salvation, in who we are and in whose we are as we move forward. He's got the past. For us in particular, the cross is in our our rearview mirror. It's been satisfied. And the glory is in our headlights, right? We've got lots of bumpy roads along the way, but he is with us and he is for us. And we're destined for something We're destined for glory. We're destined for greatness. We're destined for a place, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will rule and reign physically and spiritually with Jesus forever and ever. And so we see that theme throughout Scripture, where there's, hey, let's look at the past, let's look at the present, let's look at the future. And then the identity of Yahweh, it doesn't just give us a description it's not like I very much enjoy systematic theology books, but the Bible is not a systematic theology book. We learn our systematic theology from the drama of Scripture. The drama of Scripture gives rise to our doctrine. And so it's the drama of the Exodus. It's the drama of the plagues. It's the drama of the Red Sea. It's the drama of what happened in the garden. Like all of that shows us who God is. He reveals himself through the drama of history acting in and upon and with humanity. And so we know far more at the end of the Bible than we do at the beginning of the Bible about who Yahweh is. And imagine now the people of Israel, when they get the first five books, the Torah, they haven't had any Bible previously to that. They've had no scripture. 
And so the first five books are really saying, let me tell you who this Yahweh is and how and why he can be trusted. Not only is he the one that got you out of Egypt, he's the one who created you in the first place. He's the one who created the heavens. He's the one who hung the stars. And he did it out of nothing. He did it by himself. He didn't, wasn't battling other gods or other serpents or other anything. He, he just did it. And he did it because he could. He did it because he wanted to. And so another theme was uh, not only the identity of Yahweh, but the power of Yahweh. He shows himself powerful in creation. How many of you created something ex nihilo? Right? Nothing. <laughs> Everything you've ever created in your life is just reworking things God has made. None of you have said, let me make a kitty cat. And there was a kitty cat. Right? <laughs> but God can, and he did, and it was wonderful. <laughs> and then we also know the redemptive work of Yahweh. His saving power. When you read the pages of scripture, you should think, that's the God that saves me. The one who acted in creation, the one who acted uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who acted in Exodus, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who made the walls of Jericho fall. Whenever we think, can God help me in my situation? Like, yeah, look what he did. He's already showed you, yes, of course. Not only can he, but he will he. And it's not always that he'll take you out of that situation, but he'll be with you in that situation. And he's shown what he can do. The resurrection of Jesus Christ should put an end to it all. Can the one who raised Jesus from the dead, from the one who raised himself up from the dead, because Jesus laid down his life and took it up again himself in his own power, can that one help you? Of course It's in that name that you're baptized and it's in that name that you trust. It's in that one that you love and serve. It's that one who's actually dwelling within you. All of it's meant to tell us more about who he is and who we are for him and with him and in him. It's not a whole bunch of disparate or unconnected stories that are far removed from us. This is your family history and this is your father. Let me tell you about him. And then the last thing is we notice... um, the hesitancy of God's people. How many times throughout scripture do we see people, saints, right, that hear and believe the promises, but then they have a hard time with it, right? Abram put his wife in really difficult, desperate situations twice because he didn't really, he believed, but then he tried to bring about the promises on his own and put his wife in extreme danger. David was a man after God's own heart and committed unspeakable sins. Jonah, right, a prophet of the Lord, uh, from the belly of the fish, called out one of the most beautiful, from the sea, uh, gave one of the most beautiful confessions of faith, one of the most beautiful prayers in scripture. And then just a little bit later, it's like, I want to die. I don't even want to live because you're merciful to somebody I don't like or someone I think doesn't deserve grace. How many times do we, right? We're the same way. Like if you, sometimes I think we, we want to think that our sanctification is just going to go, we're saved and we go on this straight line to be more and more like Jesus. Let me graph your sanctification for you. (laughs) Oh, let me end it on a... Don't you? Don't you have points in your life where you seem to be walking closer with the Lord and other points where you're just like, 
I don't want, I don't like you, I don't like what you're doing, I don't want to do this. Just stubborn, rebellious, grumbling. The nation of Israel over and over grumbled against the Lord. You gave me the wrong wife, you gave me the wrong job, you gave me the wrong whatever. Over and over. I wish things were different. I wish you would have done something differently. And some of those things are actually our fault that we're blaming God for. Uh, And other things are actually just part of his providence for us. But our sanctification, like Jonah, you would, if we would have written a story, Jonah would have gotten vomited out of the belly of the fish and gone, let me tell you about the Lord. They would have repented. He said, how wonderful. Don't you love the fact that it didn't do that? We're more like Jonah, aren't we? I'm more like Jonah. I hear this wonderful, amazing good news. I'm undone by God's grace to me. And then the next day I'm like, yeah, but what about this? Couldn't you have acted differently or couldn't you have given me this or different hairline, a different metabolism, a different bank account, a different something over and over and over. And so we see that pattern, that hesitancy of God's people. And so Moses is an example of that. Moses, you know, ends up out and sees a burning bush and he protests, right? God says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to say, let my people go. This is God's intent. Let my people go. Yahweh, the creator of the universe is telling Moses, hey, go do this. And Moses does what many of us would do. Who, who am I? What are you you kidding? You're going to send me? There's a whole bunch of people here. You just said, look at how fruitful and multiply. Pick somebody else. And then he says, what name shall I send them? He says, but they will not believe me or listen to me. I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech. Please send someone else, he says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Right? He's, he's protesting like, no, no, no. And God just doesn't say, you know what? Forget it, Moses. You're a disaster. I, p- I did pick the wrong guy. You were right. Look at what verse, chapter 3, Exodus 3. God speaks to his doubts and God speaks to his fears. And so does he with us, right? God will not break the bruised weed, reed and God will not snuff out the smoldering wick. As I said in the sermon this morning, weak faith and doubting faith and struggling faith have the same Savior as strong faith. Weak faith, strong faith, have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. It's to him that we look. It's to him that we trust. It's him uh, that we hope in and believe in. But let's just just listen to chapter 3 and how the Lord wants to set aside Moses' fears. He said, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father, Uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Great. That's a great response. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is a holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. Going back to the promises, right? Other Genesis 12. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, right, he notices his people, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, who, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Go and say to them, I am who I am. Go tell them Yahweh sent you. This is where he reveals his name. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Again, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you, the promise. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Wow. So Abraham's saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm not the right guy. And the Lord says, no, you're mine. I've got this. I'm, I'm behind this. You go and tell them, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to save them. I'm going to crush your enemies. I'm going to show signs and wonders. It's going to help you believe. It's going to bring about uh, more of an understanding of who I am. Just tell them, I am sent you. And so God is trying to put Moses' fears at bay, trying to inculcate in him even more trust and trying to reveal himself more like, who is this one that you're calling me to trust upon? He believed, but there's still more to come. And so then the Lord promises his presence. He promises his power. He promises redemption. And he related on the past, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will be with you. I will take you into a land. Right? Here's who I am. Tell them Yahweh sent me. 
that you're going to see my power, it's going to be for a redemptive purpose. And that theme unfolds throughout Scripture and all these various stories. And then there's really a showdown. God versus gods. And so the ten plagues aren't random. The ten plagues are really showing that God is powerful. Yahweh is more powerful and the creator God of all the things that the Egyptians worshipped. And so if you look at the ten plagues are listed there in your in your outline. That in the ancient Near East, their understanding was that when there was a battle on the ground, that it showed the supremacy of whose gods are really in charge above. And so the understanding is the Egyptians think, hey, whatever happens here manifests who's really, who's really uh, got the gods on their side. And so what God is going to do here is say, I'm the God of all gods. I'm the God of all of creation. I created it anyway. None of these things are even really gods. And I'm on the side of these people. And really, I'm on the side of myself. And you need to get on my side, not figure out if I'm on your side. And how you get on my side is by calling out on my name and worshiping me. And so then this theme unfolds of God as a divine warrior, that he fights for his people. And this will play out certainly for Jesus Christ, right? He's the one who did combat with the serpent. He's the one who crushes the head of the serpent. He's the one who conquers death. He's the one who conquers sin. But that's unfolded, right? We don't just jump from Exodus 3 to to Jesus. But throughout Scripture, you're going to find that divine warrior combat. Uh, He fights for them in Egypt. He fights for them um, at Gibeon. He fights for them at Jericho. He fights for them uh, uh, through the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. He fights for us now. He fights with us now. And so that theme unfolds, but those 10 plagues are kind of increasingly intensifying. So it starts off with the plagues of blood, and then the plagues of frogs, and then gnats, and then flies, and then the plague of the death of the livestock. Just think about how bad like, that would start to get, right? First, the river, which you believe in a river god, and the river is a source of life, and now it's blood massively problematic for a society. And just recently, yesterday, I think it was, I heard that one of the missiles from Russia like destroyed a power plant in Ukraine. And so now, I don't know how many people, 10,000 people are without power in the midst of their winter. I mean, just imagine how devastating and how that is. You can't make food, you can't boil water, you can't feed yourself, you can't go anywhere. You can't, I mean, just devastating stuff. And now their source of life here the Nile River, which they think as the mother of life, is dead, blood. And then frogs are everywhere, gnats are everywhere, flies are everywhere. There's an African proverb that said that those of you who think small things can't accomplish a lot haven't spent a night alone in a closed room with a mosquito. Just one mosquito can drive you nuts. Imagine a whole place filled with frogs and gnats and flies. And then the death of their livestock, right? What they needed in order to be able to do their work, because they're work animals, but also what they ate, now just devastated. The plague of boils, imagine that now affecting your physical body all over you. All, everything else was external to you so far. Annoying is all get out. 
devastating, but now boils all over your body. Just scraping. Imagine that one mosquito again. That, that one bite annoys you. Imagine boils all over your body. And then the plague of hail. And we're just not, we're not talking little chickpea-sized hail. Right? This is bone crushing. It kills and destroys livestock and animals and people. And then locusts. Here again, not just would it be annoying to have locusts everywhere, but they eat your food, they eat your produce, they eat the fields, they, just, they destroy it. And then the plague of darkness. The chief deity in the entire Egyptian pantheon was the god of the sun. And now God's going to say, well, it doesn't shine anymore. It's just dark. And again, they, they didn't live in a society where, hey, let's just get our flashlights or matchboxes or turn on electricity inside. It's dark. Darkness freaks most of us out <laughs> in one way or another, right? We can't see. We don't know what's going on. I love to scuba dive, and I've never been on a night dive. I was talking to Dan Palmer about this at Justin and Adriana's wedding because he has. I'm like, he's way braver than I am. But all my friends who go night diving say it's a completely different world because all these different creatures are out at night. But like, I don't want to be swimming and not know what's behind me. Right? Uh, so, I, I, so usually when I go, I'm in the Caribbean, right? I got 100 foot of visibility. It's great. I can check around. But to jump in in the darkness and say, 10 feet that way, I may not know it, but something there that thinks I'm tasty, a tasty treat, right? Like, uh, I'd rather see it. The darkness is freaky. And not only that, it's their God. It's their main God of Egypt, and God just says, it's dark. It no longer gives off light. It's showing that this God is more powerful than all of their gods, more powerful than the alleged river God or the God of the critters, frogs, gnats, flies, the God of livestock, the God of boils, the God of hail, all of those things. It's just crushing. It's a massive victory. And then the biggest... Right, the plague of death of the firstborn. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart and he just wouldn't let the people go. And so God sends one more. The firstborn is going to be killed. But it points forward because if they put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost, then it passed over them, right? The, the angel of death passed over the entire nation of Israel clearly pointing forward to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? This isn't just a story about something that happened. It is a story about something that happened. But what we're saying is all the stories fit into the bigger story. This points forward to the one who is our Passover lamb. This is the one who did endure death for us that we might live. It's through his blood that we have redemption. All of that's pointing forward. And eventually, Pharaoh does let them go. And then a couple days later, he regrets it. And so then, now the nation of Israel is out. The Red Sea is on one side. The Egyptian army is pursuing them behind. Are they going to remember? Or are they going to forget? They forget. Like, it was better for us in Egypt. It was better for us in slavery than out here. You just brought us out here to die. They complained against the Lord. And the Lord again says, whoa, 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 I, I got this. I made a promise. I've got this. And so then he parts the Red Sea and the entire nation of Israel passes through on dry land. All of them are safe and live. 
And then the Egyptian army is crushed in the Red Sea. And I heard one time a skeptic say, you know, at some places it's only six inches deep and, you know, it wasn't a very big deal. I go, okay, well then the miracle is that the entire Egyptian army drowned in six inches of water, right? So, I mean, it's showing forth the power and might of God. It's meant to inculcate in us confidence, right? He's the Lord of the past, the present, and the future. Who is he? He's Yahweh, this God, the one who dominates all other gods because there are really no other gods. There's one God in him alone. In him, you shall worship. The Ten Commandments are going to say, it's this one, the one who delivered you. That's how the Ten Commandments start out, right? The one who delivered you out of Egypt. Here's what you should do. You should call on him. Uh, You should have no other gods before you. You should call out on his name. You should worship him and him only. You should honor his day. And then all the other things unfold from there. But it starts with redemption. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It starts with redemption. It starts with God's grace. It starts with God's mercy. And so then we only have one minute left. You see this perpetual cycle throughout Scripture, right? There's a trial, some kind of difficulty. God's people cry out for rescue. God rescues them, and then they grumble and complain because it's not everything they had hoped for, or there's still some difficulties. And then their disbelief often leads to disobedience. And then the Lord rescues his people again. The Lord remains faithful to his promises, to his people. And so that's why we say every week, remember and believe. Remember and believe. This one, this God, is your God. The the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. As we sang this morning, even in Psalm, that he will be our shield and reward. That's what he said to Abraham. That's what he is to you. The Passover lamb is pointing forward to Jesus who paid the ultimate price, his own death, that you could live and that you could have life abundantly. And yes, you're going to have trials. Yes, you're going to have tribulations, but he is going to be with you. He is going to be for you. He's going to see you all the way through. Even if it means your physical death, it doesn't mean the end of you. You will be with him in glory and your body may decay in the ground for a little bit, but when the king returns, your body and soul will be reunited and you will be like Christ. As he was on Easter Sunday morning, so will you be. Not only in, united in terms of body and soul, but also like this whole progress, if you wouldn't even call it progress, in an instant you're going to be changed and you're going to be like him never to sin again, never to be sinned against, never to live in a sin-cursed world, never to have a desire to do it. All of the struggles, all of the doubting, all of it, everything just gone. Just peace, love, mercy, grace, harmony. Amazing. And all of it's pointing forward to tell us that. And so next week, if you want to reread, review chapter three, and then we'll look at what happens when they get into the land of Canaan. So today I just wanted to look at getting them out of Egypt and on the other side of the Red Sea. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll be able to start to take a look at the conquest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you how, for how you don't just tell us that you are powerful, which should be enough for us, but you've shown us your power through creation, your power through redemption. You've also showed us your mercy. We're a stiff-necked people, much like the Israelites, And we deserved your wrath and condemnation. We deserved the treatment of the Egyptians, but you gave us grace and mercy. Not because of what we've done on our own, but because of who you are and because of your 
choice and because of your electing grace and because of your desire to have for yourself a people to dwell in a place with you forever in peace. And as recipients of those grace, I pray that we would love and serve those who are around us in a manner that befits those who bear the name of Jesus and that honors you and is good for them. In Jesus' name, amen.